Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to season two, episode 52. Um, uh, myself, I've been making reproduction furniture, high-end copies uh, for probably 35 years. And uh, I'm going to do a, a, a series. I'm not sure how many parts is, at this point this will be broken down into. But want to bring this along and show how the original furniture that was done by hand came to the into the machine age and you know how almost they ousted the the individual craftsmen um and then eventually talking about the craftsmen of today in the last 50 60 80 100 years because um, we have to remember back in the 17th and 18th century it wasn't the same kind of craftsman as me building high-end furniture um Traditional joinery, yes, but shops back then were composed almost small manufactories of many skilled artisans. Many of them seg segued and segmented into doing their own specific, uh, they, they, they would carve a talon, say, on a ball and claw foot. They wouldn't carve the whole thing. So the, the owners of the shops, businesses, did not want to... Um, let the apprentice dwell in the entire or all the auspices of the business because he wanted to maintain control if he ever got out into the real world and didn't work for him anymore or was not an apprentice. <coughs> he didn't want to give him all of his secrets. So that was a problem. So so uh, we're going to call um, tonight's episode and, and the start of many episodes under this uh, heading Reproduction Furniture. Antiques for the next generation. So the world was rapidly changing place in the mid-19th century. Cities were bursting at the seams. New democracies were springing up all over. Startling scientific and philosophical theories challenged old religious orders. And thanks to the telegraph, the railroad, and the steamship, the world was shrinking considerably. One noted historian wrote, in the mechanization takes command. In the four decades from 1850 to 1890, no activity of everyday life was taken for granted. An unbridled, inventive urge shaped everything anew. It was a time of new dreams and new possibilities. The everyday American walking down Main Street, USA, during the second half of the 19th century, man or woman, if asked his dreams or his personal aspirations, replied it was to own a piece of land, to have a lovely house, and to fill it with tasteful furnishings, if not immediately, then eventually. This was the goal. A remarkable number of the, these dreams, uh, once attainable only by the well-to-do, would become a reality for the masses by the end of the 19th century. At the core of every major furniture manufacturing center, there were two basic natural resources, wood and water and machines. The machine is here to stay. It is the forerunner of the democracy that is dearest to our hope, wrote Frank Lloyd Wright in the art and craft of the machine, which he published. The year was 1901. 
36 years after the end of the Civil War, 25 years after the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, and eight years after the 1893 Chicago Columbian Exhibition. By 1901, machines were here, machines of all types and in all phases of life. But the development of the American furniture industry during the 1850-1890 era that led up to the 20th century was more than just the whirl of circular saws, lathes, mortise machines, and power-driven carving machines that duplicated hand carving in the factories of Williamsport, Massachusetts, Thomasville, North Carolina, Rockford, Illinois, and even Muscatine, Iowa. The American furniture industry actually developed as a result of literally hundreds of inventions and technological advances, ranging from gas lighting and steam-powered engines to the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869. Before the Civil War, most furniture was made in small towns, not large cities. From the earliest days of the 19th century, anywhere wood and water coexisted, hundreds of small furniture companies had sprung up in the fledgling United States. Just as the individual furniture maker or small workshop had done during the 18th century, so small craft shops, rather than major factories, supplied the furniture needs of local families. The latter 19th century would change all this, During the 1870s, in locations where there were clusters of these small shops, furniture centers began to develop, especially where good overland or water transportation to nearby urban areas was available. Ultimately, transportation systems that linked rich forests to major cities, first rivers and canals, then plank roads, and eventually railroads, were responsible for turning small crossroad towns into full-blown industrial manufacturing cities during the second half of the 19th century. When the turmoil of the Civil War had quieted down considerably, furniture manufacturing emerged as a viable national industry. Three major furniture-making centers soon developed. Southwestern New York State, Upper Michigan, and Central and Western North Carolina. By now, Railroads linked these areas to the major cities of New York, Boston, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, and New Orleans. But a companion industry that had also made giant strides forward during the war years helped the blossoming of the furniture industry, the printing industry. Today, we take the powerful and interconnected influence of the mass media and pop culture in stride. As we said, MTV says it all. But this was a new concept in the 19th century, when two innovative art-related business phenomena burst on the scene. They led the way, with the help of the printing press, for pop art to make its way into the hearts of both of these folk art forms idealized the family and homes of the public. First came the well-known mass-produced Courier and Ives prints, that sold originally for a pittance and now can sell for thousands of dollars. These were so popular that in the 1840s that a London office had to be established to accommodate the European clientele. Then, a less known 
today, but then a very famous American sculpture. John Rogers created his Rogers group of plaster statues. A loose comparison might be drawn between his 1860s Norman Rockwell-like groups and the 1990s goods by the Franklin Mint. A brilliant marketer, the popular and successful Rogers reached his middle-class audience the same way many companies do today, by mail order. The way was paved so that by the 1870s, the newest furniture styles were made irresistible through mail-order catalogs featuring colored chromolithographs, the same printing process Courier and Ives had successfully used, striking pamphlets, magazines, advertisements, and a rush of lifestyle books were filled with ideas of how to make your home more beautiful. Furthermore, the furniture being sold nationwide through mail-order catalogs was delivered from the factory to your town by railroad. In Chicago Furniture, Sharon Darling tells how, in 1878, a Pullman car was outfitted with two furniture showrooms and sent into the Western Territories. Eventually, though, this method was abandoned and furniture store owners themselves rode the trains to the cities. One city had all the necessary ingredients to become a great manufacturing center immediately, just after the Civil War. Nearby natural resources, fine craftsmen, great railroad and shipping facilities, and an ever-expanding population all around it. The the, The city was Chicago. Chicago was well on its way to becoming the foremost furniture manufacturing center when the city was almost totally destroyed by the devastating fire of 1871, the night Chicago died. Ironically, what is at first appeared to be a major tragedy to her industries actually gave Chicago an edge over the rest of the country. The companies had to rebuild, and when they did, old equipment was replaced with the most modern steam machinery available at that point. Companies elsewhere simply could not afford to scrap their ill-functioning and uh, perfectly adequate tools and equipment for much more expensive and new power-driven models. Meanwhile, in many parts of the country, human labor was still less expensive than buying and installing modern machinery. In those areas without adequate steam or wood or power to run the new machines, human labor was the only option. Eventually, though, the competition from the Chicago furniture industry created a new industrial standard throughout the country. So by the end of the 1870s, an industry that had begun in small workshops in crossroad towns was now bringing style, fashion, and function into the homes of Americans across the country at a fraction of the cost and the time it had taken only a few years earlier. So just think, by this time, an entire suite of living room, dining room, or bedroom furniture could be made in less time than it had taken in the 18th century craftsmen to produce just one piece of furniture by hand. By now, manufactured furniture was being turned out by the boxcar load. But there is more to making a piece of furniture than sawing boards and fitting drawers together. Ornamentation, carving, applying inlay, marquetry, gilding, and so forth and so on. 
And don't forget the finish. Loveliest when hand rubbed, obviously. Add interest and quality to each piece. Because these steps are often mechanized today, many people do not realize that how much early reproduction furniture often combine manufacturing shortcuts mixed or melded with fine craftsmanship. You see, the late 19th century and early 20th centuries were a very special time in the history of American furniture. Wonderful craftsmen, carvers, finishers, and joiners who had learned their skills in Europe were flocking to America and bringing with them specialized knowledge every day. Simultaneously, new power-driven machines and equipment made such labor-intensive and time-consuming jobs as sawing and planing much simpler. Yet at the same time, many, if not most, of the steps necessary to produce a fine piece of furniture still required the talents of a skillful operator. Remember, this is the end of the 19th century, not the end of the 20th century. In those days, machines were largely controlled by precision movements of the operator's hand or foot. These machines required a high skill at operating, not by flicking a switch, pushing a button, or punching in instructions in a computer. The individual, individually operated lathe, mortising machine, and carving machines remained the mainstay of the furniture manufacturing companies. Hand finishing of surfaces and carved decorations was definitely still required. Truly automated furniture production came slowly, one technological development building on another. Industry-wide automation was not at, in a place until well into the second half of the 20th century. Through the Civil War, um, this brought many advances in machinery, technology, and transportation. Other important changes in manufacturing that we now take for seriously for granted did not come until about after World Wars I and II. So isn't it interesting how scientific and technological revolutions often evolve for man's attempts to conquer the world? So if yours is the mindset that considers all manufactured furniture to be inferior to handcrafted pieces, let's just think again. Style, design, condition, quality, materials, construction. Each of these elements is important when assessing a piece of furniture. A poorly constructed 18th century piece that is of, is of displeasing design and made of poor quality wood, even if every part is hand-hewn and assembled, will be inferior to the well-constructed later reproduction that is a beautifully designed and stylized piece made of choice woods. Over the years, reproduction furniture, unfortunately, has gotten a really bad rap just because of the one word, machine-made. But let's look closer. The concept that all machine-made furniture is inferior exists largely because the public views next to nothing about the whole process of furniture construction in general. For example, some of the same people who, say, snub reproduction pieces may be charmed by a late Victorian piece. What they do not know is that the late Victorian piece they think is so wonderful and call antique is just as much machine-made as is the reproduction piece they are snubbing. 
That is why knowing even just a little bit about furniture, construction, and assembly can be quite the eye-opener. A detailed con- discussion of the word antique appears in the, in the common dictionary. Because people throw this world around so casually and intermix those definitions. Many people assume that any piece called an antique is handcrafted. That's the connoisseur's definition. In reality, a piece of furniture may meet only the grandmother definition of an antique. A piece just has to be old to be called an antique. So the problem comes when someone looks at a 60-year-old Hepplewhite-style chair being called an antique and assumes the machine-cut, glued-on classical urn decoration at the back is hand-carved the way it was done in the 18th century. Our hypothetical shopper then buys the Hepplewhite-style chair and loves it until someone tells him the difference between the 18th century chair and his chair. Suddenly, our friend's beloved chair becomes a stepchild when it should have been appreciated all along for who it was itself. So where does this leave us? To avoid such mistakes, anyone interested in furniture styles and design should know these basic facts. Machine-cut dowels and dovetails were commonplace by the mid-19th century. Even the finest Victorian furniture workshops that carved by hand the rich floral ornaments so highly prized by furniture connoisseurs use machines to cut dowels and dovetails. By the 1880s and 1890s, technology had developed machines that could simultaneously duplicate hand-carved motifs in multiple copies, while another machine could produce the effect of oak, rosewood, and other fine woods. That machine made it possible to make expensive-looking furniture out of cheaper woods. As for those machines that could make stacks of car motifs that seemingly were made by hand one at a time, you must realize that craftsmen have always used dyes, jigs, stencils, molds, templates, and patterns to make their <clears throat> output consistent and as efficient as possible. That's just good business sense. Of course, not all craftsmen have good business sense or artisans. Ultimately, many of the processes that we look down upon and consider to be a part of mass production really are only labor-saving devices. Furthermore, making interchangeable furniture parts and constructing identical pieces on an assembly line is a substantially different from a robotic automation. So let's, uh, let's move on to machines, the secret to quickness and quantity, not quality. So in the, uh, in the beginning, uh, for many years, uh, sometimes I apologize for not being able to include everything I wanted to in, in certain talks. One area I wish the, there were room to expand upon is the evolution of technology at the turn of the century. Yet I know many listeners would skip over um, minutes and get bogged down in the, in the mechanics of making the furniture. Those listeners are more interested in the look of the, and the age of the pieces than how they were made. Still, 
In many instances, how the furniture was made directly affected the way it looked. And telltale signs left by tools and machines are certainly clues to accurately dating a piece. So here, for those who are interested, is a brief summary, so to speak, that provides more but not too much information about tools and machines used in making furniture and the impact they have had through the years. Everyone knows that rudimentary hand tools have always been used to make furniture. Engineers and craftsmen alike have sought to make their tools better to improve both the equipment and the quality and appearance of the final product. But most of all, they're looking to seek ways to reduce the amount of time it took to make each piece. Giant steps toward this end were made throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Steam power gave men capabilities they had only dreamed of. And with the widespread use of electric power in the early 20th century, the rate at which new inventions appeared reached fever pitch. Scholars <clears throat> who would um, possibly listen to this podcast would delve deeper into the study of machine tools and their effect on furniture making. So the next several minutes are simply to acquaint others with some basics about tools and to lightly touch on the different types of work that the most common tools perform. The 1990s have left the development made at the turn of the century in a cloud of dust, as they say. But at the time, these changes in furniture making were both remarkable and life-changing. So I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut off of uh, episode or uh, 52 part one here of uh, reproduction furniture, and uh, we'll pick it up next time. But for those who are interested in uh, seeing the historic preservation, uh, not just listening to podcasts, you can find us at the Historic Preservationist on Instagram, all one word, the Historic Preservationist on our YouTube channel, all one world, word, and the Historic Preservationist on our IGTV. Uh, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.